Hello, everyone. It's John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-hosts, Maria Wickvilla and Caroline Diorti Edwards. We are going to talk about something that no one wants to be part of. It's kind of like when you're in limbo, you have no idea what's going to happen. We're going to kind of tell you what's going to happen. You're not going to like the answer, but we're also going to give you advice. If in fact you land in limbo, which in our terms would be the dreaded wait list, every business school in the world, that is the highly selective ones, of course, have wait lists. And people are going to find themselves on these lists shortly as the round two notices come out for many of the applicants. And as we all know, round two tends to be the largest single round. And over the next few uh, weeks, people will be notified by schools on whether or not they got in or were rejected or in the euphemism of Harvard Business School were released. And then there's that other group of people that are going to be in limbo. I want to ask Caroline, who had been director of admissions at NCOD, why do wait lists exist in the first place? Well, it's a very useful tool for the schools to manage the class. Um, so when the, the school admits a round of candidates, they have no way of knowing exactly how many of those candidates will actually accept their offer and finally turn up on campus. And, and the admissions office has some very specific goals about um, you know, the size of the class, the profile of the class, the diversity, et cetera, et cetera. And they can't control exactly who among their admits is going to accept the offer. So they need to have some buffer so that if people turn down the offer that they've made to them, and some will inevitably, even at the very, very top schools, then they have someone else that they can bring in who will replace that, that person in the classroom. So it's, it's really an essential tool for managing the class and, you know, particularly for managing the class profile, I think, you know, and, and towards the end of the season, the, the admissions team will be scrutinizing very carefully, you know, the, the, the composition of the class, who is left on the wait list and, you know, who would be the best fit from the wait list, given the, the, the spots and the, the, the buckets of profiles that they're looking to fill. And it's also used as a protection uh, for yield, which obviously is, you know, you admit a certain percentage of students and then only a certain percentage enroll. People who are on the wait list are more likely, because you're having some communication with them, to be certain. In other words, you'll know that they'll enroll, right? That's right. So the yield is always lower on waitlisted candidates. So that's also an issue for the schools, right? Because if you admit someone straight away, there's a much higher chance that they will actually accept the offer. If you put them in limbo, as you said, many of them will start focusing on a plan B, right? Which makes sense because they have no guarantee that they're going to get an offer. So that's an issue for the school because they don't know if they make an offer to a waitlisted candidate, whether they will actually accept that, right? And so, you know, when I'm advising candidates who are waitlisted, it's it's important to show that you are still motivated, right? And you may have, you know, more or less opportunities to do that depending on the school, but it's important to show if, you know, if you genuinely do want to go to that school and if you genuinely would accept the offer, communicate that clearly to the school because they have no way of knowing that otherwise. And many waitlisted candidates will just sort of disappear from view and stop responding to communications from the school 
because they, you know, they've moved on and they've assumed I'm probably not going to get in. So I'm going to forget that option and, and move on to something else. And, and the school doesn't know, you know, which type of candidate you are. Are you someone who is actually going to accept the offer if we make it? Or are, are you someone who's who's just focusing now on the plan B, unless you tell them? Now, Maria, I'm thinking, you know, to be put on the wait list is a special, cruel form of purgatory in MBA admissions. Let's face it, you know, you've worked really hard to put in a great application. You studied really for many, many hours, days, weeks, even uh, to get a good score on the standardized test. You lined up your recommenders. You're waiting for a real decision. And instead you get a, well, maybe. It's a special kind of torture, I think. Uh, can, can you speak to the, the the feelings, the pain, the emotional scars of applicants who get, end up on a wait list? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's almost like, oh, you're so close, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it makes it almost that much worse in a sense versus <laughs> a rejection. Because with a rejection, you say, okay, fine. They didn't want me. I wasn't the right fit, whatever it was. But with a with a wait list, it's like, well, we do think you're good enough, but you're not quite a slam dunk. So like, <laughs> we definitely think you could be on our team, but we're not sure that you'd be a starting player. So it's like this weird sort of like, it's a compliment. And I know it's, I know it's very, it's very hard for obviously for candidates to feel this way, but it really is a compliment in some ways uh, because they say something like, well, what went wrong? I'm on the wait list. What went wrong with my application? What went wrong with my interview? What do you think happened? And I say, well, nothing wrong happened because they would have just rejected you. They wouldn't have even bothered to put you on the wait list if something had gone wrong. So yeah, it's like you did everything right. And we really like you, but we're not sure if we're going to propose or just leave you in the friend zone. And we're playing the field. I use a lot of dating analogies. So it is kind of like, we're playing the field of like, we're not going to make a commitment, but we might want to date you. So let's just see, <laughs> let's just see who else is out there. And I think that's especially true for people. I mean, the good news is if you get, if you get on the waitlist in round one, I think it's all the more agonizing. Although I do think round one waitlist people have a better chance of getting in, but it could be, there are sort of, I think there are two, there are a couple of main reasons why people get on a waitlist. One is sort of an obvious weakness, such as we really like you, but who your you know your GMAT wasn't really quite high enough. We're you know, we're not really sure that you can handle the coursework. But many times, especially at the more competitive schools, where pretty much every candidate who makes it that far can handle the coursework, it can often be about yeah, like you know, we really like you, but let's just wait to see who else is out there, right? Like let's see in round two if there's someone in your bucket. Right. So let's say somebody works in consumer packaged goods or they're working consulting or they're an engineer. It's like, yeah, you're really good within your your little world, but maybe somebody better is out there who's going to apply in round two. And so, you know, I like you, but let me see if I can get somebody better. And so that's, I think, a particularly torturous thing because it's, you know, and also it's so out of your control. Right. Like you have no idea, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's yeah. This reminds me of my latest guilty pleasure, binging Love is Blind on Netflix. Do you know the concept? No. Okay, here's the concept. The show's creators put a bunch of single men and single women, uh, not together, but in separate rooms. And then they each go into pods where they can't see each other. And they essentially date sight on scene. 
And the goal is to make a connection, an emotional connection with someone so that you are so smitten by them that you actually propose. And after you propose, you get to meet the person for the first time. The whole idea being, of course, you know, we're obsessed with physical looks. And this is an attempt to really focus on the personality, the person, the values, instead of the physicality. And then then they send these couples off to Mexico for a week vacation, after which they have to be married. But while they are in this, in this pod situation, interviewing each other, they are in limbo. Because many times one doesn't know how the other feels. You can't read their body language. You can't see them at all. You can't touch them. So, you know, you're limited by a person's voice and what they say. And it's kind of like being on a wait list. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, <laughs> I'd much rather be on a wait list than a show. God, that sounds terrible. <laughs> but it's an entertaining show, I have to admit. <laughs> Uh, but back as, as all train wrecks are, all train wrecks are entertaining to watch. So I get it. <laughs> but back back to the wait list. I'm thinking this is a particularly difficult decision or time for a candidate who's, let's say, has two admits from schools that they would be perfectly willing to attend, but then they're on the wait list for the school that they really want to attend. That's sort of their dream destination. And then waiting around and playing, you know, one school against each other and deciding, okay, should I go to the one of the two schools that have already admitted me? Or do I wait to the very end to see if the school that I really want to attend will take me off the wait list? And the truth is, the odds of getting off a wait list are not all that good. Is that right? That's right. They are. There's always more candidates on the wait list, I would say, than more than double what they could potentially admit, right? Because they, they have to, there's different groups of people in the wait list, right? So, so it's not that, you know, everyone on the wait list could potentially take the place of anyone who turns down the offer, right? So if someone turns down the offer who's, I don't know, a female engineer from China, they're not going to replace that person with invest, you know, investment banker guy from New York, right? So, so, right. so they're looking to fill specific profiles. So you do need quite a few people on the wait list to, to have that those that many options, right? So inevitably, there's far more people on the wait list than could possibly be admitted. So yes, your chances are are low, uh, um, although they would be higher if you have got an unusual profile. So if you are the investment banker or the management consultant or the Indian male engineer, then your chances are going to be less than someone with a more unusual profile. But it's, um, you know, if, if someone's got an offer or they've got a number of offers, as you said, from schools where they think, you know, it's a great school, I would be very happy there. I wouldn't turn down those schools for the sake of, you know, um, possibly getting into your dream school, but probably not getting into your dream school, right? So I would never advise someone to turn down those other options. You know, potentially they what they could do is accept an offer and wait to see what happens with the wait list, but they will probably have to pay a deposit in the meantime. So they would have to be ready to forego that deposit for the sake of keeping that option as a backup. Right. 
Now, Caroline, you mentioned earlier that one thing a candidate should do if he or she finds himself on the wait list is to at least let the school know that you are motivated, you still want to go there, and that if you were, in fact, admitted, you would say yes. Are there other things that Maria or Caroline that you think candidates should be doing? Because I guess, you know, you could become pretty annoying if you continually contact the school. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I've certainly had the situation where, you know, I was managing the waitlist at INSEAD where, you know, people are just calling all the time and they become a pest and they're constantly, you know, trying to deluge the admissions <laughs> office with additional recommendation letters and, you, you know, it, it it really becomes a negative rather than a positive. Did they, did they send you wine and chocolate? <laughs> No, they should have. <laughs> French um, wine is with chocolate, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that would have worked. <laughs> so, you know, there's a delicate balance to strike, and it depends on the school. So the top U.S. schools, um, I, I'm sure they've had some terrible experiences with candidates like that who've become, you know, in, incredibly annoying. And and also, you know, all the other people who get involved, right, who start trying to put pressure on the admissions office, alumni and, you know, other donors and so on who are getting involved on someone's behalf. So it can get quite painful to manage. So, so you know, in, in some cases, they will tell candidates to um, please not send in additional elements. But I think, you know, in most cases, you can send in a statement about your motivation for the school. And, you know, you should definitely take advantage of that. And, and if they don't tell you to not communicate with the school regularly, I would say be in touch with the school like maybe every three or four weeks just to show that you, um, you know, you're still motivated. You would still accept that offer that you haven't disappeared, which some other waitlist candidates will have at that stage. Right. So you want to stay on their radar screen. But be thoughtful about what you communicate to that stage, right? Try to communicate something that is useful, maybe some update on your profile, but don't be, you know, don't bombard them with a lot of additional information that may not be relevant, right? So, you know, it's, it's an important balance to strike. Now, this may be also, this, your strategy should change, perhaps, depending on what school you are involved with. Is that right, Maria? Yeah, absolutely. And many schools really are quite open about what they are looking for on the waitlist. They will tell you, you will get assigned probably a waitlist manager and they will say exactly like, we want an update from you. If you're still interested by whatever, March 5th, whatever that date is, send us the update. Some schools, this is not nearly as common, but some schools will even, if someone's on the waitlist, they might even communicate with you and say, look, we're just really worried about your GMAT quant. We just, we don't want you to struggle if you get in here. But yeah, for the most part, just for starters, follow instructions. And then I think, you know, one of the things I think you can do that is that helps demonstrate your commitment to the school is that a lot of schools, especially now in this COVID world, are doing online conferences. And so there might be like a women's conference or a crypto conference or something like that online. And many of those happen in the spring. So I often tell people, just sign up for the conference and attend it. So that way, at the very least, you can email the admissions office and say, hey, you know, I'm super interested, blah, blah, blah. And I just attended the women's conference last week and it was wonderful, really made me feel like I was part of the community, et cetera, et cetera. Because that is essentially a free, it takes time. But aside from that, it's it's a it's a way to demonstrate for them that you 
that you're really interested. And another way to communicate, right? Rather than say, hey, is there anything new? You got to report stuff that is somewhat substantial or to Caroline's point, adds value to your candidacy to maybe tip the odds in your favor, right? Yeah. And I think it's really important to um, also step it up at work. So step it up at work or in your community service. So that way you have something of substance to send instead of just like, well, I'm still hanging out, right? If you say something like, oh, you know, last week I completed a project or I'm up for a promotion next month, which is going to give me new managerial responsibility. So when I get to campus in six months, I'll have that much more to share with my classmates. And that's a good idea if you're on the wait list. Also, if you're planning to reapply next year anyway, because, you know, it'll just make you that much stronger of a, of a reapplicant. True. Now, I've also heard people go after additional recommenders. You know, you get a, rec- a, a new recommender above and beyond the required number of, uh, that's asked for by the school. And you basically have that person say, hey, I understand that my friend or my colleague or my employee has been put on the wait list. I just want to reaffirm that person's incredibleness. <laughs> Is worthwhile or is that a waste of time? It it can be if they have a useful perspective to share. So it's not it's not at all necessary in every case. I think it depends on who you've already had as a recommender um, and whether there's someone who brings a really useful additional perspective and perhaps knows the school particularly well, you know, at that stage perhaps an alum recommender could particularly help um, as someone who can speak to your fit with the the community so if you have someone who's going to you know really add an extra dimension I think that is useful but if you don't don't worry about it it's not it's not essential by any means you know especially if you've already had two strong recommendations right if you're confident in what has already been submitted and that that's maybe something to check, right? If you've been waitlisted, maybe touch base with your recommenders. And, you know, if you don't know what they said about you, now might be a good time to check. I mean, it's also something um, <laughs> you know, I think it's important to say if you've been waitlisted is it's an opportunity to step, take a step back and, and think about, you know, why you might have been waitlisted rather than a straight admit and sort of reevaluate every step of what you did and what you presented. And is there something that you could have done better? And yeah, it could be how you work with your recommenders, right? And I've, you know, I've seen candidates who, you know, haven't been proactive in coaching the recommenders and therefore, you know, maybe the recommender didn't understand what was expected of them and submitted something that was, you know, way too light, as in, you know, didn't really say very much about you or give much detail. So that can occasionally be an issue. But or let me let me make it make it a more provocative scenario here for everybody. What if since I filed my application, I bumped into a family friend who said he knows Henry Kravis, who gave a hundred million dollars to Columbia Business School, and I am now on the wait list at Columbia. Do I flick that switch and try to get Henry Kravis to write me? a little note to get me off the wait list. Maria? <laughs> I mean, is Henry Kravitz going to write a note that says, I'm going to withdraw my $100 million donation if you don't <laughs> let this kid in? Probably not. <laughs> if it's someone who doesn't even know you, then holy cow, I don't see how that adds any value at all. You know, I do think I have heard a rumor once of, of someone who was 
the CEO of, of a very elite uh, private equity firm who had one of their employees on the wait list. And that person did write a letter to the admissions office basically saying like, boy, it would be a real shame if, you know, we didn't recruit as often. I I, I don't know if that's exactly what was said, but it was uh, it was a, you know, that person had at least some sort of a pull. They could at least, you know, they had a negotiating chip, but certainly- Do you know not. what the result was? They did get in. I bet you that was Harvard. But at the, yes, it was. And it was, at the, and it was a, but it was at the very last minute. This person yeah. had actually already put in a deposit and had actually moved to another city because the other thing is Caroline was saying, like the private equity bucket's a pretty, pretty full bucket. Uh, yep. And so, you know, what I'm guessing happened is that somebody else from the private equity bucket probably got off the Stanford wait list. And then that creates a domino effect. Like, okay, we have another private equity seat open. So this guy gets it. And then that guy quits his other program. And then they're in a scramble to find someone else at the last minute. But I mean, it's, actually, I think it's very a point, That's a really an interesting point about admissions. There is a cascading effect. So from the decisions made at a Harvard, a Stanford, a Wharton, an NCR, a London Business School, lots of other things happen to the schools below them, right? So depending on who gets rejected, depending on who gets put on the wait list, depending on who gets taken off a wait list, it affects the admission decisions of schools uh, that are further down on the ranking lists. And that cascading effect is pretty significant in, in terms of what's called summer melt and uh, yield and, and all the kinds of things that admission officers worry about on a regular basis. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very, very tricky to manage, right? It's an art, not a science. It's no way of exactly predicting how many of your admits are going to finally turn up um, on the first day of the program, right? It depends on a lot of different factors. So that is very tricky for admissions officers to manage. And I would imagine that, you know, if you are a school that is further down the pecking order, it's a bit hard, you know, the, the issue with yields that we discussed about, that we discussed earlier with waitlisted candidates is going to be even trickier, right? So it, I, I'm sure that it's harder for them to assume that someone who's been waitlisted who they then make an offer will actually join the program. Right. I think it's easier for a Harvard or a Stanford or a Wharton to make an offer to a waitlisted candidate than it is and, and you know, hope that they will actually come versus some other schools. So those schools cannot count on filling all their places and, and using the waitlist to the same extent that those top schools can. So they have to, you know, admit um, a large enough group of people that they can assume that there'll be a certain level of attrition and that they will end up, hopefully, fingers, toes crossed with the right class size and profile at the end of the day. Okay, so here's a question. How often should I be contacting admissions uh, so I don't become a pest, but I make it very clear that I really want to be there. I really want to occupy a seat in that new full cohort, come hell or high water, can I, should I contact them once a week? Should I contact them once a month while I'm on the wait list? What, what, what's the right level of connection? So I think about once a month is probably a good metric to follow. I would also be a little bit strategic about it. So for example, if you are around one waitlisted candidate and you know that a school has recently had its round two deadline, I advise people to reach out sort of shortly after the round two deadline to sort of remind them as they're going through the other profiles, like, yoo-hoo, here I am. 
don't forget about me as you consider my bucket, right? So I, I think that there's there's that. I will also say, by the way, like the whole thing of like, I really, really want to come to your school. That I don't think that that really sways at a Harvard or a Stanford or a Wharton as much only because like, they're like, yeah, we know. <laughs> so I always, you know, sometimes I read these like post-interview reflections for the Harvard interview. And it's like, you know, I, I just want to reiterate that if I'm accepted, I will go to your school. And I'm like, yeah, they know. Yeah. Uh, it's a little less, it's a little less effective for those schools, but yeah, for the other schools, showing them you love them, you got to show them you love them. All right. There you have it. So if you find yourself in limbo over the next few weeks, know the odds are against you, but know you need to reach out, make the school uh, know that you really want to go. Don't be a pest, however. Uh, And when you communicate with the school, you should communicate something of a substance that adds to the value of your application that makes it more likely that you will get off the list. Otherwise, you are in purgatory, admissions purgatory. (laughs) Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And thank you, Maria. And thank you, Caroline, for all your great advice and insight. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quant. You've been listening to Business Casual.